0: rags had shortly before that gone on shark tank and nice. so there were some kind of interesting compelling things going on with, with the company came to a point where she's like hey i am gonna fill this role so um we've been talking about this role for a long time for like 18 months but she's like hey i'm actually ready to pull the trigger now so we need to decide if you're if you're interested or not you know she's like hey we're gonna we're gonna offer you the coo role and at this point you know i struggled with it because i liked tech I like Lucid, but, you know, and so I I thought about it for a long time. I actually had several discussions. Is is this a bad move for my career? Am I closing the door on working in the tech space Mm -hmm. if I do this? And there was a lot of debate going back and forth of is this is this a good move for me? I think we ultimately concluded, hey, there is some risk that if you do take this role, you might not be able to work in the tech space again.
1: This is The Early Years, a show about influential early employees of the most successful companies and their stories that have made a lasting impact. I'm Braden Anderson and on today's show, how our guest has taken his experience from some of the world's most successful companies to help this clothing startup thrive. How important is brand? When you think about the brand of a company, you recognize the iconic ones. Nike, Apple, Google, Amazon. These companies have done amazing things year after year and decade after decade to create and build their brands. But what about your personal brand? How important is your brand for your career? And how do you build your brand to have the iconic resemblance you hope for? Today we're joined by Josh Robbins, the Chief Operating Officer at Rags and their first sea level hire. Rags, which many of you may know from the TV show Shark Tank, has seen a lot of success. And while they were on the show, was even offered a deal by Robert Herjavec because of the unique, stylish, and easy to wear kids rompers. Josh has spent the last two decades building his brand from founder of a company to graduating from Cornell Johnson's MBA program to working at Amazon, one of the best brands in the world. When Josh was about to graduate with his master's degree in accounting from BYU, he turned down a full-time offer at Ernst & Young to start a clothing company that was begun out of a case competition in school.
0: So I was at BYU and I was doing the, uh, my master's in accounting. And I was in my final year of school, and um, you know, some friends and I had started this company called Kai, which is a street soccer company. And it kind of sounds a little weird, but the idea was we're this life, you know, this lifestyle brand for soccer. And, and the premise was, there's the the most popular sport in the world is soccer. If you can kind of build this this momentum around this and be the lifestyle side, let Nike and Adidas be the on the field stuff, but let us be the lifestyle side, with the kids mm. we are at school, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, then we could be something big. So that was the idea. So we'd started that, we were getting good traction and we decided to enter into the BYU business plan competition. And at the time there was one winner and the winner got $50,000 plus wow. 10 grand in services for, uh, you know, with an accounting firm and 10 grand in services with a law firm. And so, We did that competition ended up going all the way through ended up winning that competition. And, uh, so, you know, once we won that competition in my mind, I was like, okay, if we can win this competition, it validates the idea enough that I can do this full time. And so I ended up doing it, uh, you know, full time.
1: No kidding. Okay. So you go, you do the competition and in the part of the part of this is you actually had a a really appealing offer at one of the big four accounting firms, Ernst & Young, right? Uh, That you had turned down to do this. That's a pretty big, bold move. Uh, (laughs) I'd love to understand how you made that decision.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's actually, I feel pretty lucky in some regards. So I had done an internship in between my first and second year of that master's degree. And I did it with Ernst & Young. Uh, I did the internship. I got an offer. I had signed to go back and work with Ernst & Young when I graduated. And so, you know, during this whole time, we're doing school, doing the KIA thing, doing the business plan competition, you know, starting to get traction. And then we win the competition. And so I was kind of in this spot of like, OK, now what do I do? And then <laughs> right around that same time, Ernst & Young reaches out with an email to, to basically all incoming uh, new hires. And they said, hey, if you would like to defer your offer to study for the CPA exam, travel after graduation, take some time for yourself, whatever it is. Feel free to defer your offer for up to six months, and I think the idea was they had a few more people scheduled to start than they needed, and so if Mm. they could stagger it a little bit, then it would work out well for them. And so for me, I was like, "This is amazing! I'll defer my offer for six (laughs) months." And so then I've got like a a six months risk free trial run at Kaya full time. So I deferred my offer, and um, you know, once we'd finished, won, won that business plan competition. And then between the time when my deferral was set to expire and when we won the competition, we raised money with the venture capital firm. And so again, it was additional layer of security to the point where I was like, okay, I can, I can uh, you know, not actually go work for Ernst & Young. Now I'll say this, Ernst & Young was amazing. When I came to the conclusion, I wasn't going back. I sat down with the recruiter, kind of explained the whole thing and they were awesome about it. So it's not great to, to back out on an offer. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, I, I think I handled it pretty well. And, and Ernst and Young was really awesome about the way it went down.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I still feel like that's such a scary decision to make, right? Like you're right out of your, your master's degree now rather than an undergraduate. So it's a, it's a little bit different. But you now have this opportunity to go work for a huge company, get that on your resume. It's kind of the stamp of approval, if you will. But, but you decide to go do, do this brand new startup. Um, so I'm curious what, what happened with Kaye.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it was scary. And, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, okay, I'll go do this. And, you know, worst case scenario, if this doesn't work, you know, maybe I'll go back to school or something like that or go back and get an MBA something like that. So anyway, we go to Kaya, we do, I do it for about five years, like four and a half wow. years. And, uh, you know, had a good run at it, moved down to Southern California. It was actually, you know, had a blast. I mean, I was having a really good time. I wasn't making a ton of money, but I was having, having a good time. And, um, you know, we, we, we grew the company every year. We were trying to grow right when there was the economy in 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. with all the housing market stuff. Um, so it got a little tricky. We still grew, but a bunch of retailers we sold into and out of business and some other things. And then eventually, uh, the direction of Kaye shifted. And it shifted from kind of being this lifestyle, um, somewhat afford- you know, affordable brand, I should say, to uh, this high-end premier line was developed. And I'm, when I say high-end, I'm talking $80 t-shirts, a $500 jacket, like, you know, denim jeans. Like it didn't, it wasn't anything like the existing product. And so once that, once we started going down this path, which I disagreed with, um, it, it felt like, you know, Kai was, was kind of going down this path and I didn't want to be a part of that. And so at that point, I was trying to figure out what my next gig would be. And it was tricky because on the one hand, I was like, okay, I have a bachelor's and master's in accounting. Maybe I go do accounting, but at the same time, I actually haven't done a ton of accounting over the last four and a half years. I've done, I was doing, you know, operations and some sales and some marketing, mean, a little bit of everything. Yeah. And so you know, I was trying to decide what to do there, but it seemed natural because that was what my degree was in. And but then if I thought about it, I was like, I don't know that I necessarily want to do accounting full time anyway. So it kind of helped me make my decision but i didn't know what to do and eventually a mentor of mine who was actually on the board of Kaye, um who's actually a a current investor in the company where i am right now rags kurt Kurt roberts who's a partner at kickstart he and i were talking and and he had mentioned that maybe business school would be a good opportunity because i could tell a really good story and you know originally i I didn't like the idea of it because I'd already had a master's degree. I would already spent all this time and money getting a master's degree. It seemed like a waste to go get another one. But eventually the more I looked into it, the more I was like, Hey, this could be a really good, a really good path for me. And so I ended up, you know, going down that path.
1: Yeah. How big did Kaye eventually get maybe from an employee count or from a revenue point, if you can, if you can answer that.
0: Yeah. So we are, we are just under, we are just under a million dollars in our best year. Okay. And um, so still relatively small. And we had six employees and everyone kind of working like some are working part-time, some full-time at a pretty low salary. So we were grinding away. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to say that we are a little ahead of our time. This was pre Shopify, pre Instagram, Facebook was just getting started. Mm. Um, and so, you know, who knows? I'm not making excuses for <laughs> the, the several mistakes that we made along the way, but, um, you know, like I said, it was, it was a fun ride. And with some of the tools that exist today, it'd be fun to see what it could have done.
1: Yeah. Do you ever regret not going back to EY? Uh,
0: you know what? I don't. Uh, it would have definitely put me on a, a very different career path. For me, I did realize, I, I, you know, I think it's a fantastic career path. It's very stable. Um, I, you know, highly value that side of the of the business on the accounting side and the numbers side. But ultimately, I think I get a little bit more satisfaction on being a little bit more of a driver in, in the growth uh, uh, and progress of the company than on the accounting for transactions. And so yeah. for me, I think it was a, a good move. But again, I think you can't go wrong with E&Y. But me personally, it was a good move to, to continue down a different path.
1: Yeah. So you do KIA for about four to five years. You now get this advice, hey, maybe business school is the right decision. Um, what happens at that point do you just start applying to all these business schools and and hopefully get in or what what was that process
0: yeah there's there's another wrinkle why this was kind of a tough a tough decision for me and that is i came to the conclusion that business school w- would be a good option for me in october and third round applications are due january 1st basically mm. and so if you miss third round you you really don't get in i mean there is a fourth round but there's there's got to be a really, really compelling reason. And so even third
1: round, I feel like is pretty late.
0: Third round is late. I would have loved to have been first or second if I were doing this. And so I didn't have a a huge window. And so I hadn't taken the GMAT. I hadn't studied for the GMAT. (laughs) So I had basically, you know, two and a half months to study for the GMAT, take the GMAT, write my essays and apply and, and, you know, get my letters of recommendation. I mean, there's a whole slew of things that need to get done. And so once I decided, it was, it was a tall order, so I started studying for the GMAT. I took it quite quickly. I got a score that I was happy with. You know, oftentimes you can take it, you know, two or maybe three times to get the ideal score. For me, I had a number in my head, and if I could get this, then, then I'd, I'd go on to the application process, and I hit that number, spot on. So I hit, I hit that floor there. Okay. Um, and So from there, then I applied to schools, and so I ended up applying. I didn't have a ton of time, I ended up applying to um, Stanford, Harvard, and Cornell. And the Cornell one is interesting because a a brother-in-law of mine had mentioned that he had looked at going to Cornell. Cornell has this um, leadership fellowship scholarship for uh, several incoming freshmen, or not freshmen, but several incoming students into the class. And so the more I looked into it, the more I was like, hey, if I could get school for free, that's a no-brainer. And then if I can get into a Stanford or a Harvard, that also is a no brainer. So (laughs) I'm going to try for all three of these and and kind of see what happens. Well,
1: this is kind of a random question, but I'm curious at what point of Kaya is, did you decide to like, what happened? What was the tipping point? What happened in October? There was like, okay, I've got to go to business school was, were you done working at Kaya at that point? And like, what was the actual tipping point of quitting and saying, okay, now I'm going to just put all my eggs into this basket.
0: Yeah. So we, I had been kind of unhappy in the business for a while. Okay. We had, we had hired on some new hires. Um, one of which came from Nike, um, had a different philosophy to the, to the business. And, and that's kind of where this direction of let's go out and do this high end product line came from. And so ultimately, and I was not alone, but we could feel the, the control of the business starting to slip away a little bit and, and go in this different direction. I still wanted to, to, to work, maintain a good relationship. So even though I was going back to business school, I maintained the relationship mm-hmm. and I actually worked at Kaye um, until July, basically the month of gotcha. school. But ultimately I knew I w- wasn't going where I wanted to go. I knew I wasn't going to make any more money. I knew I wasn't going to have, you know, the input that I'd like to. And so I, you know, it was tough to walk away. Cause I'd spent five years building this brand but the way that the brand was being treated at this point and, and the way the decision-making was happening, it made it pretty clear. It's like, okay, super bummed uh, to walk away from this. It's not. It, I didn't even get like a big exit, a big paycheck. It was mm-hmm. just kind of like, ah, uh, I don't like where this is going. Um, I'm, I'm not happy in the, in the role. This is definitely not what we set out to do originally. It doesn't align with the vision. It's, it's time for me to figure out that next thing.
1: Yeah. And that just happened to be Cornell, which is a great next thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I was fortunate. I mean, I you know I didn't get it didn't get an interview at Stanford or, or Harvard, but I did get that fellowship at Cornell. And uh, you know, like I said, I would never change anything. Cornell was amazing, and I absolutely loved my experience there.
1: Yeah. Tell tell me a little bit more about that experience. Um, maybe just about business school, and then maybe specifically about Cornell.
0: Yeah. So you know, because I had done, I already had a master's degree. I had done, uh, you know, a mission for my church. I had done kite for five years. I was on the older end of the spectrum for my classmates. And so I had two kids already. A third one, which was a surprise came in between the first and second year. Is so this course,
1: You're like 30,
0: maybe. <laughs> yes, I was 30. 30. When I okay. Yep. Okay. And, you know, and typically I, you know, a lot of my classmates were between 25 and 28. There was a couple around my age, but the bulk were around 25. And so Cornell was awesome because it's upstate New York. It is, uh, you know, it's in the, the city of Ithaca. So it's, it's, it's family friendly. It's not like downtown, you know, I'm, it's not Columbia or, uh, you know, right down in, in New York City or not Harvard down in like, you know, Cambridge. But it is, it's, it's this kind of sleepy little college town, but it was great for the family. And so yeah. my wife had a great time. I had, you know, three kids there by the time I left. And, you know, Ithaca is beautiful. We did a bunch of hiking. And so family-wise, it was an amazing experience. And then school-wise, you know, I met some of my best friends at that, you know, in that uh, class. And today I keep in touch with them and have been to several of their weddings. And it's just been a, a fun ride. And I got an amazing education. So all in all, you know, I think it was a fantastic decision for me and my family.
1: Yeah. Now, if this is possible, um, what's your biggest takeaway or biggest learning that you received from business school?
0: Oh, let's see here. I would say that's a good question. Um, a lot of it, honestly, one of the reasons why I didn't want to go to business school is because I hated school, getting my, <laughs> my, my accounting degree. It was brutal. It was just so intense, so much homework. Business school was a lot more fun. So, there was all these social hours, and you know these recruiting events and stuff. And so, I think one of my biggest takeaways from business school is you know the the analytics is great, and uh, you know doing the analysis and making sure you've considered all your all your options and looking through all these different frameworks to look at a decision. But I think ultimately, one thing that I took away, probably the biggest thing is you know the relationships you build with people matter these people who I'm going to school with are going to run big companies one day and, mm. and you know, working with them now and being good friends with them and, and leveraging each other is how we all become successful. And I think that's probably my biggest, my biggest takeaway, to be honest.
1: Yeah, that's phenomenal. And, and I'm also curious then if you were to do business school over again, like would you do it at a different time in your career, right? You're 30, you've had all these things going on. Uh, it kind of worked out because of Kaye, Um, But I'm curious if you would do it at a different time in your career.
0: You know, I would. So Kaya was fun. I did it for four and a half, five years. And honestly, it's too long. And so I I think there's a reason why a lot of these venture capital firms really want you, you know, when you take money, they want you to either scale or basically fail, shut the doors. Like we don't want to drag this thing on forever and never turns into anything. And so I look at it and say, you know, fantastic experience, tons of learning. If I could have cut out two of those years at KIA and, and gone to school two years earlier, then that would have been way better for me. Uh, that would have been ideal for me. So, but I'm curious why early. I think because, you know, the learning stop, I mean, the learnings kind of stopped honestly mm. in that, in that five year period I was. Is, I take that back. I mean, you're always learning to some degree, but the bulk of the learnings, I think I did get in those first three years and those last two were starting to become frustrating they were, um, again, we're not quite going in the direction that we wanted to. And so if I could have ideally said, okay, these three years, stop, go to business school right here, that would have been perfect.
1: Okay, so uh, at this point, you, you graduate from Cornell, and you've done an internship. Uh, I know this previously, you've done that at Amazon. Uh, okay. Is that where you go after you, you graduate from Cornell?
0: It is so. I did my internship, and then I went there. Got the offer after the internship, and I went there full time. And I, I do think, um, you know, the reason why I went to Amazon is because when I was at Kaye, you know, the, the, this this person who joined the company had come from Nike, and it was amazing. Um, Nike's obviously a fantastic company. I was really surprised to see how much value was placed on on that brand, on that person's resume, and how much. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. How much uh,
1: weight, um, maybe?
0: Yeah, how much weight is really, really placed on that? And so, I looked at that and said, okay. When I go to business school, no one's ever heard of Kai, You know, very few people have gonna heard of Kai." So when I go to business school, the way that I maximize that that experience is I need to go to a world class you know, recognized by everybody, you know, respected by everybody organization. And Amazon kind of checked that box. You know, everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know anyone who doesn't like it or doesn't shop there. I think everyone, um, you know, anyone who knows about the recruiting process there, I think respects the the process and and kind of the things that Amazon does and has done, um, you know, and the size and everything they're doing. And so ultimately Amazon kind of checked those boxes. And so I feel fortunate that I was able to get the internship And then, you know, once you get that internship, you've got, uh, what is it? A 12 week period of time to go earn that offer. And, and, you know, Mm. I feel fortunate that came through and, and got that offer to go back full time. But, uh, you know, Amazon's an amazing company.
1: Yeah. And that answers one of my questions. I was curious what, you know, why Amazon and especially going from a startup where you're the founder to like one of the biggest companies in the world, which leads me to my next question is like, what was it like going from a six person startup to one of the biggest companies in the world?
0: Yeah, it was definitely different. I mean, yeah, six people to hundreds of thousands of employees is very different. Yeah. Um, you know, it, to some degree, because I didn't have any real formal experience, I kind of looked forward to it. It's like, hey, how do these, you know, how do these other organizations do it? And quite frankly, being at Amazon and kind of seeing the way they do things, like, man, it like I just learned why they are so good. And I, you know, ultimately I walked away from Amazon. When I left, I was like, I would hate to compete with Amazon. Like they are just good the way they do things. And so there's these, there's these leadership principles that Amazon uses as basically a framework to decide who to hire. And it also kind of forms the culture. And as I looked at those leadership principles when I was first looking around, I was like, I agree with every one of these. Mm. And you know, Amazon is an organization that doesn't just talk about these principles, like once a quarter or at the end of the year, it is like ingrained. You hear these principles mentioned every day. And, and, you know, basically it's the data that's used to promote people, to fire people, etc. And so, um, but I highly agree with those principles. And I think it's what makes Amazon good today. And again, you know, for given its size, Amazon is great. It's still at innovating and, and doing these things. And so ultimately I, it, it's a very rigorous, company to work for. Yeah. You grind at Amazon, but, um, there's a reason why they're as big as they are and as successful as they are because they have got some things right.
1: Yeah. And what, what did you do there? Tell me about your role.
0: So when I first started there, I was a, a vendor man, a senior vendor manager, which is essentially a buyer. And so I was on the tools and home improvement team. And so my job was basically, there's kind of three core metrics that I was using to measure my success. One was, um, revenue growth this the next is profitability growth and the third is selection growth or skew growth and so mm. amazon um and so basically i would go out there and talk to a bunch of vendors and try to get them to sell us more product basically yeah and i was on the side where you're actually selling direct to amazon amazon actually own, buys your inventory as opposed mm. to like a third-party seller um uh, for those who are familiar with amazon so um so it's a good experience and it's interesting because Amazon is such a good company at, at building for the future. And so of those three goals, my most important goal was new SKU growth. And that's and that was open because, hey, that doesn't affect the, the revenue today, but it does affect the revenue in a year or two and, from now.
1: And new SKU growth is essentially getting more items available for purchase on Amazon. So that if exactly. I want to go buy tools that I have the widest selection possible on Amazon. Is that it right?
0: Is, yep. That's exactly right. <clears throat> so, you know, I worked with like, you know, Bosch, DeWalt, Makita, and my job was to say, Hey, if there's anything you haven't <clears throat> made available for us to buy, give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd go to trade shows and I would talk to a bunch of other tool manufacturers and say, Hey, you know, sell to us. And so that, but that was, you know, it's That's funny. so cool. That was more important than revenue or profitability was get more SKUs today, more options so that in two years, those are now generating, you know, yeah. fifty hundred thousand dollars whatever it is.
1: That's so fascinating. I'm, I'm just enthralled by that whole process. That's so
0: cool. I would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was good. The one downside was you always do these end of year negotiations. Yeah. So those would get those, uh, no one looks forward to those, but, uh, it was, it was interesting cause I'd go negotiate, uh, you know, new terms with, with vendors every year. And so, um, that in and of itself was a fantastic experience. I didn't love the experience, but, but from a growth standpoint, that was phenomenal as well.
1: Yeah. So one of your main reasons for going to Amazon was to get kind of this brand on and building your own brand, and putting that stamp of approval, if you will. Um, So uh, my, my question is, is like, has going to Amazon done what you expected it to do? And, and I'd even, if you can like share an example of how it's helped you.
0: Yeah. Um, I would say absolutely it has. And uh, um, I think where it, you know, I've worked at a couple companies where there've also been former Amazon employees, uh, Qualtrics would be one of those, Lucid Software would be another. And I think for those who are familiar with the recruiting process, and it's not just Amazon, you know, Google has a phenomenal recruiting process, Facebook does, you know, et cetera. But for those who are familiar with the recruiting process, just getting through that's pretty intense. And then I think that the bar is held quite high internally. Uh, You know, Amazon has this concept called a bar raiser actually. And so when you go interview at Amazon, there's someone that comes in during the interview process who's unrelated to your team, who doesn't care if you work there because they're never going to work with you. But that person's job is to say, "Hey, does this person raise the bar for the company? Is this person better than 50% of the company? And if they're not, that person can veto you, and you don't get through no matter what." Wow. So, the, so that bar raiser concept, you know, is a good concept, but it does kind of it does show it's um, you know it's hard to get a job there. And so I think that that follows you in a career. And so when I was going to Qualtrics after Amazon. Working for Amazon helps. There was a guy on my team that had worked for Amazon. Um, and so I think that, you know, he, it just helps. It adds credibility. A lot of people, again, people respect the company because they do great things. Yeah. Um, they've grown to be a, a, a really big size. And so I have found that that has followed me in every step of my career. Having Amazon my resume has for sure helped and benefited. And, and if, if nothing else, where I'd say it really is a benefit is if I'm interviewing for a job and it comes down between me and someone else, the fact that I worked at Amazon as opposed to maybe some other company that maybe isn't quite as well known or quite as well respected, I think maybe tips the tips the, the hat kind of towards yeah. you know, that experience.
1: So I'm, I'm really just curious, and, and you've kind of alluded to this, but why does this brand matter so much? Why does that amazon brand on your resume matters so much and and if someone doesn't have that on their resume like is it holding them
0: back you know it's a, it's a fantastic question i think the brand matters you know personal brand what you've done and your you know your resume is basically just a list of brands and and it's interesting because i don't think you have to have any of that by any means and you know, you could go do amazing things without graduating from high school or without graduating from college or without having, you know, worked at X, Y, and Z. And and so I definitely don't think it um, is a requirement by any means. What I do think it does is it does increase your chances. And I think the way that people look at it is it allows them to make, for for lack of a better term, a judgment about you. And it's, it's usually, you know, a positive indicator that like, hey, if this person has worked at, Amazon or, you know, a Google or Qualtrics or wherever, then that does, um, that is an indicator that this person is good and, and will be good if I hire them, I think. But, and so it it does, I, and again, I think in the recruiting process of companies, I think recruiters are always looking to say, okay, what are reasons to say no to people and what are reasons to say yes to people? Mm -hmm. And I think the brand on your resume and kind of telling good stories about those experiences is just giving ammunition to the recruiters and the hiring managers to, to say yes to you. Um, and I think it's a little bit harder of a, it's a little bit of a taller order. I'd say, if you don't have those experiences again, you can for sure do it and you can be better than the person who went to Amazon. But I do think it does facilitate the recruiting process.
1: Yeah. I love it. I love that response too. Um, so you spend, I I believe it's a year or two at Amazon, but obviously as your career progressed, you decided to, to leave, uh, what, what kind of led to you wanting to leave Amazon?
0: Yeah. So Amazon was, like I said, amazing company. I think there's a couple factors that were made me open to leaving. One of them was I did have a long commute. It was an hour each way in a carpool. Um, and so that wasn't, that was not ideal. And, um, to be quite frank I, I liked the sun a little more than i realized when i was living in seattle yeah. <laughs> so I, I was open to new geographies though well, seattle's beautiful and i do love seattle but a little more sun is is nice but also it was super i mentioned this earlier super rigorous so I, you know as as a vendor manager you, you know you have your role and you manage this category on the site and and ultimately i was managing a 200 million dollar business on the site wow but then they'll say, okay, you're also gonna give everyone this subject matter expert assignment. Someone gets the pricing subject matter expert, someone mm-hmm. is the subject matter expert on deals, et cetera. I was given, and, and they kinda of just assign it to you and say, you're in charge of this. I was in charge of deals. And deals are basically fourth quarter, get you know, all the discounts that come with Black Friday and everything that goes past that. And so I had to move around. All these, so it was Thanksgiving day. I was working like an 11 hour day moving deals around uh, to, you know, because some of them didn't have the inventory yet. hasn't been received yet. Some of them, you know, we'd sold too many. There wasn't enough units to do the deal, whatever it may be. But I spent this huge, long Thanksgiving day doing this. And I was like, yeah, this is just good, but man, I don't want to do this for much longer. And so like, that was one reason where I was like, Hey, I'm open to other opportunities. Not that I'm, I shy away from hard work by any means, but, um, you know, you can, you could, you could work your life away at Amazon and pretty easily.
1: So let me get this straight. It's obviously the day before black Friday. So you're on Thanksgiving
0: day. You worked an 11 hour day. I did. Yep. I, you know, fortunately I didn't have to be in the office, but I was at home laptop on my lap the entire day, you know, stopped to eat the dinner, but you know, moving stuff around the entire day. And it was just brutal, Jeez. you know? you you know, there's an impact for doing it, obviously, which is great, but it's not how I want to spend, you know, I I realized at that point, you know, I'm willing to grind for my career for sure and work hard, but I also, you know, there's certain things that like, okay, I don't want to sacrifice too much. Um, And so I I realized that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for balance. Mm. Uh, And again, um, you know, I felt like, hey, there's probably opportunity where I can still work really hard, but I can still enjoy a little bit more of you know some of these vacations and time with family so i was open i wasn't actively looking but i was open to the idea and uh a friend of mine that i that uh had also worked at amazon he was at Qualtrics at the time he reached out to me and said hey we're forming this new partnerships team and uh i think you'd be a good addition to the team and <clears throat> i looked at that and said hey this is great i i was on the basically the retail side of the business at amazon and I wanted to be more on the technology side. And so that was, um, when he reached out, I was like, hey, this is actually a great way to take my career a little bit down a slightly different path and more towards uh, you know, tech or, or SaaS. Josh, so what, what did you do at Qualtrics? See, I was doing uh, strategic partnerships at Qualtrics. And so what that is, is it's looking at uh, other organizations and saying, okay, how can I either have another organization influence a deal that Qualtrics is trying to close, or bring us a deal, and so it's basically influenced and sourced deals. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that was a mixture of uh, using other tech companies. You know, there's um, you know the Googles of the wo- the world or Amazons, and then that's also a mixture of service companies. So it's like, hey, these guys will kind of help you design your you know design your surveys or analyze your data. And then it's part of the deal that we're closed with Qualtrics is we bring in this third party to say, okay, we're giving you the full, complete picture. Gotcha. Because
1: go. Qualtrics just, in, I assume they didn't have those services offerings internally. So that's where the value of the partnership would come in.
0: Exactly. And so a lot of it is, you know, there's some sort of a gap that's missing for a particular customer. And if we can fill that gap of the partnership, we can close that deal Instead of someone going with another with a competitor of Qualtrics, basically. Yeah. Okay. And and again, a lot of them will a lot of them, if we can build a strong enough relationship, they'll bring us deals all day, which is great. And that becomes a great source of revenue.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So you go to Qualtrics. Tell me what what that experience was like. And especially going now the opposite way from a massive company to a relatively small company. What what were they? How big were they when you joined Qualtrics now?
0: Yeah. So when I joined Qualtrics, they were just over a thousand employees. And so to your point, I'd had this experience on the really small, the really big, and now I'd kind of, you know, hit hit back in the middle. Yeah. And it was good. I mean, Qualtrics is a fantastic company for for those who don't know, you know, recently sold $8 billion and so a wildly successful story. And when I joined Qualtrics, um, it was great. I, you know, some of my friends that I hang out with most today, or, you know, from the company I took them in contact, there were just great people at Qualtrics, great company, great product. Ultimately for me, what I realized is, um, for me, when I was there, I felt like I'd gotten there maybe three to four years too late. Qualtrics hmm. had been around for years and they had that like kind of a slow growth path at first, but it felt like, you know, a lot of the real, real good learnings and growth opportunities were happened to those who had joined three or four years earlier and I was in there and, and for sure had things to, to learn from the company and, and exciting things to do. But there was this, you know, part of me that's kind of like, yeah, I wonder if I just missed the boat with Qualtrics, um, you know, on, on when you join.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, is that ultimately what, what made you want to leave Qualtrics then and, and look for something else?
0: Yeah, that was a big, that was a big reason. I mean, Qualtrics was great. Qualtrics had, uh, Qualtrics had done a fantastic job, you know, within their sales organization and partnerships sat within the sales organization. And it was this new team. We're trying to figure everything out, um, in terms of how we do partnerships within the organization. And, um, you know, there were lots of learnings, lots of things that we did. Well, lots of things that we did that weren't that well, that didn't go that well. And so, um, all of it was, was obviously a great learning for me. Why I was open to leaving is um, I looked, there was another, you know, Qualtrics partnerships wasn't as big or as important to Qualtrics as I maybe would have liked it to have been, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so, so what I mean by that is um, Qualtrics is a fantastic direct sales organization. And I kind of was thinking, you know what, I'm not sure if, if, partnerships will ever be as important as I want it to be. I want to be part of this, this, you know, I want to be where like the action is, I guess, in the company. Hmm. And um, it, it, you know, so I didn't, I wasn't quite sure it was going to happen there at Qualtrics. We were doing good stuff Um, again, fantastic people. And um, actually, since I've left a lot of great things have happened on that team, which is awesome. But uh, that was kind of the conclusion I came to as why I was open to, 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 going elsewhere.
1: So how did you get introduced to Lucid? What was that process like for you? And, and, and what did you end up doing there?
0: So a, a friend of mine had said, Hey, a friend of his had reached out to him and they, they had a person who was doing partnerships. That person had left. You wonder if that person had any ideas of somebody and I came to mind. And so, um, I was like, yeah, let's, let's talk. And so I talked to him and it was interesting because I'd gotten some really good partnership experience at Qualtrics. And they now had this open position. The, uh, Lucid had pretty good experience with partnerships. Google had been a great partner that had given them a lot of growth in the past. And so as I was talking with Lucid, I realized, hey, you know, they, they, they really do value partnerships. It's been a core driver for them of, of revenue and leads in the past. I've learned some really great things from Qualtrics. Um, I think I can actually add a lot of value and then you know, I would ultimately be leading the team in, in, at this point. And so for those reasons, I was like, yeah, this seemed like a really good deal. I, you know, I, I liked all the people um, you know, it's funny cause Lucid does flowchart software basically, which isn't the sexiest thing in the world, itself, <laughs> but, um, but they had such a great business model and it was, it was, it was so well run and they'd largely been a freemium company and they're starting to do some of the more enterprise B2B type, stuff and that's where some partnerships could really come in. And so it was all around a really good fit. And so I think Qualitix prepared me really well with some of that skill set. There's obviously things again still to learn, but I could take what they had already done. I could take what I had learned and continue to build that and form that as the company kind of entered this new phase of growth.
1: Yeah. So you you stay there for I believe a couple of years, a year to two years, and then you make a pretty big jump in my eyes from tech, you know, Qualtrics and Lucid, and now you go to Rags, correct? So yeah. first off, what is Rags? <laughs> and, and then how, when and how did you get introduced to them?
0: Yeah, so Rags is uh, a limited edition kids clothing brand. And it really, the, the core product is this one piece romper and there's no snaps through the legs. So you, you basically get it on the child with a stretchy neck and you go all the way through the neck, and there's no snaps to mess with. It's one piece, so there's no matching required. It, you know it looks good. And so definitely a different, different path than what I'd been doing. And yeah. you know, I worked hard to get into tech. And then when this opportunity came up, I was like,, well, you know, what is this? What am I doing? And so it is interesting. So I got to know Rachel Nielsen, the founder of Rags. I got to know her around the time I joined Lucid and someone who I'd worked with at, at Kaye, was consulting Rags a little bit, and it had recommended I work there. And I got to know Rachel and looked at it. I was like, "Oh no, this seems really cool," but um, you know, I, I wasn't interested in leaving where I was. It was great. I just kind of started, and I, I really liked Lucid. Um, Rags had shortly before that gone on Shark Tank, and uh-huh. so there were some kind of interesting, compelling things going on with, with the company. And then as time passed. Uh, Rags had raised some money with Kickstart Seed Fund, which was a mutual investor in uh, Lucid and uh, Jeremy Andrus, who's a a local kind of rock star in the business world, uh, CEO of Traeger. And so those two organizations had invested and um, Kickstart and Jeremy Andrus sat on the board. And so there came a point where Rachel's like, "Hey, we've been talking for like 18 months. She's on and off. Just would you know run into each other, whatever." And it came a point where she's like, "Hey, I am gonna fill this role. So um, we've been talking about this role for a long time, but she's like, hey, 'Hey, I'm actually ready to pull the trigger now.' So we need to decide if you're if you're interested or not." And you know, again, because they had just raised this money, you had this you know great board that has been built. I was like, "Man, this is really pretty compelling." Um, and so. You know, she's like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to offer you the COO role. And at this point, you know, I struggled with it because I liked tech. I liked lucid. I liked strategic partnerships. And so I had zero complaints about what I was doing, but then I was like, okay, I'm getting this opportunity to go be the, you know, a C-suite role in a venture backed business Mm. with, with some of the, you know, premier business leaders of Utah sitting on the board uh, it kind of an exciting company I mean one thing that's fun about consumer in general is just the passion that the end consumer can have for it a lot more passionate than maybe someone would be for flowchart software although, <laughs> although there there was some passionate flowchart software users so yeah. for, but you know and so I, I thought about it for a long time I actually had several discussions with Jeremy Andrews with Kurt Roberts about hey it, you know it, is this a bad move for my career am i closing the door on working in the tech space Mm. if i do this and there was a lot of debate going back and forth of is this is this a good move for me it seems fun it seemed like it would be fun it seemed like it'd be a really good growth opportunity but is this a wise move and so a lot of debate a lot of discussion obviously no one has a crystal ball so tough to say i think we ultimately concluded hey there is some risk that if you do take this role you might not be able to work in the tech space again, and 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 you know Utah's tech scene is fantastic. I live right here at Point of the Mountain, where you know the Silicon Slopes are, where all these you know a lot of these tech companies reside. And so, um, I liked that I lived nearby, an um, in industry that I liked to work in, and I respect it and all the talent. And so, it was a tough decision. Ultimately, I ended up deciding to take that job, and really it came down to my thought was hey, I get, this, I get this upgrade in opportunities that I probably wouldn't get while I was at Lucid. And that is, you know, uh, you know, I'm on the board. I'm not on the board. I'm attending the board meetings and I'm working closer with the board and helping, mm-hmm. again, steer a little bit more of the strategic direction of the company. And that, uh, I thought, hey, you know, that gives me a seat at the table that maybe I would regret if I wouldn't take. Yeah, and yeah. so I ultimately said, Hey, there's risk of me leaving, and, but there's also risk of me regretting not doing this. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, things go well. And if, if things don't turn out quite as I'd hoped for whatever reason, uh, you know, I've worked at some pretty great companies with some really great people who are going to do great things. And hopefully, maybe they can hire me at one point. So.
1: <laughs> It was almost the same logic you had when you were at Kaye and you had the opportunity to work there six more months. Like, Hey, if worse comes to worse, uh, I still have a Ernst and young job and I'm going to go have fun for six months.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's a great, so.
1: you're consistent. I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they were actually telling you, Hey, this could be a career ender on the tech side. Like I'm kind of yeah. surprised by
0: that. So cause we debated cause they knew where I was. I mean, it was tricky because, um, kickstart was an investor in lucid. And so there's kind of this, um, conflict of interest so, mm. to some degree taking people from one portfolio coming to another. Um, obviously that stuff happens and you know, it, it's part of the deal. But one thing that I was, you know, I was concerned. I'm like, Hey, like, what does this do for me? Post Racks? you know, does this closed door, you know, again, I've loved my experiences at Qualtrics and lucid, you know, could I keep doing those experiences potentially, or does it like shut the door? People would not hire me. And So it was kind of a question that I had, as a question I think that they had had as well. And you know, ultimately, we did determine that it was a risk, but at the same time, it's um, I've been amazed at how much overlap there is, and and like it doesn't take that long to learn a business model. And um, you know, I didn't forget the stuff that I that I've learned in the tech side or done, and. I've been able to take a lot of that and apply that to the consumer business, which has been cool. And I think, you know, who knows, maybe at some point I do go back into tech and I can probably take some things I learned in the consumer space and take that back and add value there. So it, it's a risk for sure, but um, it, it seemed like it was worth, worth the risk to at least try something that says, okay, th- th- this could be good for me. And, and ultimately, you know, without disclosing too much information, but you know, my compensation, shift from lucid to rags cash wise was about the same but i had way more upside from an equity standpoint and so for me it was like okay i actually have enough equity where there's some where it could be game changing if we get big enough whereas you know the equity that i had at at previous companies would be really great to cash that out but it wasn't going to be life-changing so uh that was part of the decision too was i was like okay compensation wise my downside, it's about the same, but my upside um, can be a lot bigger. Yeah,
1: uh, you kind of alluded to this, but I am curious. <clears throat> this transition from software to like consumer retail—it's a big change. Um, has it been as not—has it been as challenging? But like, did the processes translate from one industry to another, or did you feel like you were going into this blind?
0: Yeah, you know what? I, I felt like th- they translated quite well. Now, now some didn't. You know, in, in, in software, sales is a function of you know, how many salespeople you have and how many calls they're doing, it, you know, in, what's their close rate and all these kind of things. And so it can become a little more – to some degree, it can become a little formulaic to say, if we want to hit this much revenue, we can back into how many sales guys we need and how many calls we got to make, et cetera. With consumer and selling a website, it's not, you don't have as many levers to pull to like hit a number for the month. Yeah, you know, yeah. in, in software, you can say, hey, let's, go do, let's go discount, let's go do this, let's go whatever it is. If, if e-commerce, you're you're a little bit, you have, again, fewer levers it feels. And so that was one one big difference. On, on the flip side, you know, a lot of the processes are the same. You're thinking about it, you know, it, it's different industry, but you're thinking about the same way. And here, an example of that would be, Um, our product development team. So we've got, you know, product designers instead of software engineers, but really what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a product that you can sell. And the way that our design team was designing when I first got there is it was a very linear design process. So we would, you know, we'd start a a full seat, you know, our, our spring season, we'd start it and we wouldn't have anything to turn over to our production team to actually get it, get it, you know, made in the factory until the very end, you know, so it'd be like this three month long process. And at this three month long process, then there's a, finally a deliverable that, um, you know, is the designs of the product. And the problem with this linear design process is if you start to slip on deadlines, then it starts to become a constraint and it starts to mm-hmm. delay everything. And so that end timeline can get pushed out so far that then you're missing timelines. And for, for selling product, you can't really afford to have products not launch in the correct season. So, for example, you can't your summer product is going to be tank tops, short sleeves, whatever. Your fall, and winter product is going to be longer sleeves, and so you can't really afford to launch summer at a time when maybe it should be fall. Yeah. So, I took the concept, you know, in software development, you know, has this you know agile software development process where you basically have these scrums and you say, okay, what's the most important? Can we do basically smaller chunks? And so we started taking this design process and saying how do we take this design process and chunk it up into smaller chunks because um, there's a ton of work on the back end for our production team to do before it gets manufactured and so now what we do is we kind of work in in a month-long chunk so it's like hey the design team's gonna gonna design what we plan to release in january they're gonna finish that turn that over to the production team the production team's gonna start working on all the specs to make sure the cuts and the sleeves are the right you know right all that kind of stuff and so while production's working on that, the design team goes on to the next month and start designing. And so now we've got this, this process that allows for finished products to be moving a lot more quicker through the process. And so instead of, instead of big, long chunks of the same task, it's, you, do, you do multiple tasks, tasks to completion in a, in a short period of time and then do multiple tasks to completion on the next period of time. Yeah,
1: that's so cool. Such a great application in being able to apply things from different, different worlds, essentially, and, and how yeah. it's seeing the, the efficiencies of that. So, Josh, I've noticed something fairly consistent here in your career where each time you've gone to go to get a new job, you were really introduced to that job by someone that you already knew. And I feel like <clears throat> there's kind of this <laughs> I don't know, like when I was in my undergrad, I, got a, I had a job at RC Willie. And my dad is the the vice president of operations at RC Willie. And I hated telling anyone else that my dad helped me get this job because for some reason, my pride was going to be hurt that I didn't get this job on my own. And I think there's this common consensus around that. But it seems like you haven't followed that. And I'm curious your take and, and kind of what's, tell me about that process.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I'll have to turn in a resume to apply for a job. But ultimately, I have had someone basically helping me out internally to get through the process. And um, I found it to be a really good way to get a job. Now, you're right. You know, there could be some of these um, concerns around, around this. Maybe you didn't get through it on your own, this kind of thing. But, you know, I found so many companies, they want to basically say, hey, like, you know, can you vouch for this person? Is this person good? Like, you know, they're looking for culture fit too. Like part of it is, can they do the job? Part of it is, you know, do people want to work with them? And so, I think if you're, you know, if someone is helping push that along, I think they can help get over some of those maybe question marks that someone might have about cultural fit or or whatever. So, I'm a big believer. So, I think you know you can for sure get jobs through a traditional application process, and in most cases, probably you have to do formally apply at some point. But I have definitely found that um, if you know getting getting through this big stack of resumes and mm-hmm. and getting getting that push through that to the hiring manager to actually get the chance to, to talk have been really helpful and you know th- there's there's various reasons again i've said this before where recruiters are looking to say no they've got 40 applicants or 100 applicants they're looking for to find ways to whittle that down and so if i can kind of bypass that to to get that initial interview and not be part of that whittle that maybe they looked at something and said hey you didn't stay at Qualtrics long enough cut him yeah um done. so if I if I can bypass that you know whatever they're looking for just minute reasons to cut you then you know I think that serves the, the the I think that serves the purpose and ultimately for me you know the resume is good I think resume can tell you a lot but getting in and talking to the to the hiring manager the recruiter it is kind of really where you can figure out, do they like you and do you like them? And so it, it's yeah. worked out well.
1: Yeah. And that's so fascinating. And I think, I don't know, I personally can't imagine trying to go get a job by just sending in a resume anymore. I just feel like I would leverage, you know, obviously I'm a little bit more into my career. Maybe everyone that's listening isn't. Um, but I think that's just, there's no pride in it. Um, if that's going to be what helps you get the job, there's no pride in someone else helping you at least get the interview, right? You still have totally. to get the job. They're just helping you get the interview and your, your probability of getting that interview increases drastically. If they say, Hey, look at this resume.
0: Absolutely. And, and it's funny because even with recruiting beyond that, it, you know, it that's how I was able to get some stuff done, you know, doing partnerships is I'd have someone make an introduction for mm-hmm. me to someone who can help make a decision. So totally. I found, you know, it does help just get things done in general. And it applies to more than just recruiting, but I think it's a big factor in recruiting. At least it has been for me.
1: Yeah. So Josh, one thing I'm really excited to talk about is um, how rags was on shark tank. Um, Now I know that happened before you were there. You've been there for the last about two years. This happened about four years ago. Um, I'd love to just hear what has happened with shark tank. Um, do you Do you get to work with Robert ever, or like what's tell me about that?
0: yeah, so Rex on Shark tank they they were on before I joined, and they did do a deal with Robert and um on t v so what what a lot of people don't realize is doing deals for it makes good t v and so a deal was done on t v <laughs> but on the back end, the deal didn't go through oftentimes the deal is not great for the entrepreneur or th- or the, the, the shark, you know, because there's some due diligence that, can, that happens after the show. Sure. The shark might say, listen, you don't need my money. You're in a good spot. You, sh- you shouldn't even take it. Like, like, and so there's all these reasons why it doesn't go through. And it actually, I think, happens more often than people realize. Sure. But for rags, did, did the show, did the deal on TV, didn't do it in real life. But the nice thing is that that still gets aired as a rerun. Today. And so we, we still get benefit of people, all these wow. people seeing the brand on Shark Tank, and, and it for sure has helped the company get exposure.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's funny because as I've watched that episode, she was killing it. Like she didn't need their money. Maybe yeah. she needed some guidance, and that's more so what she was looking for. But from a financial standpoint, it would have been, been a bad deal, in my personal opinion. Um, but yeah, maybe the connections would have been really valuable and the process and how to grow a company. I'm sure that could have been helpful, but, uh, for financially, I feel like
0: she was killing it already. She, she was. And, and when I joined again, there was, well, I joined, she, she had just raised a small sum of money, but you, you know, it's been run really well. It, it's been profitable the whole time. And, um, you know, the only raise, reason to really raise money would be to try to scale things up a little bit, a little bit more. But the reality is, she, she was in a fantastic position, and quite frankly, could have never raised money and still be in a great position.
1: Yeah, awesome. Uh, now, you've had some pretty cool partnerships with Rags as well. Uh, so, I, obviously, I imagine your past experience doing partnerships has really helped in this current role of of kind of shaping these partnerships. But any interesting experiences you've had at rags with these partnerships?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it's been great. And and again, getting back to your earlier question, I was doing partnerships, with these tech companies, and I can apply those same principles here in the consumer, which has been awesome. So we did a partnership with Nordstrom, you know, and obviously, you know, we're selling it to Nordstrom and putting it in their different stores. And so that's been a, a great thing for rags. And he's kind of a, a, a feather in your cap to sell into Nordstrom, I think, because it's, it's it's a great company, great brand. And then we've also done licensing deals with Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel. And so wow. those deals consist of, you know, that, that gives us the opportunity to take their artwork, you know, the you know Mickey and Minnie, and you know, and all these different characters, and and use that artwork on the product, and then and sell it. And so part of that is, you know, we're given a license uh, a license fee for using that. But it's been a great a great partnership for us um and, and and what we found is you know when we did partnerships with disney star wars and marvel it isn't so you know they're not doing a whole lot to move product for us but yeah. it allows us to target different different interests in, in user groups to get exposure to new customers and so what we have found is um, one of the best Products for getting new customers is you know launching a product with you know Disney or Mickey Mouse on it or something like that, and so it has definitely been a help help us gain new customers. So we started out first with Disney, and Disney did amazing. And then we're like, okay, let's do Star Wars, and and you know Star Wars was coming out with movies at the time, and we thought, hey, Star Wars could be good, and. Star Wars did well as well. And, you know, I've got four boys, we've got a decent amount of Marvel stuff and we're like, we should do Marvel. And we're all thinking, you know, Marvel's going to do great. You know, potentially Marvel might be bigger than Disney. We go and sign this two year agreement with Marvel. We've got this guaranteed minimum payments we have to give them, you know, whether we sell anything or not, we owe them this much money. Mm. And, you know, our first, our first two releases in the first, you know, four months, we're doing like 20% of what we hoped to do. And so just, just kind of a miserable failure in all honesty. And we had all this product. We were like, great, we've got this product. It's not moving it for whatever reason. It just didn't, it just didn't appeal to our, to our consumer for whatever reason. And, you know, so this one started to really get me worried because we had again, a two year agreement and we owed them a lot of money over those two years guaranteed. And so uh, I reached back out to them and just said, hey, so, so I should give some background too. Disney, over the years, has acquired Star Wars and Marvel, and they, they let them run separately. Marvel is a completely separate division, has all different processes and systems, but it is ultimately owned by Disney. And so when we ran into this issue with Marvel, I reached out and just said, hey, you know, Diane is the person that we were working with. And I said, Diane... Hey, can we chat like this is just not working out the way we had hoped we're bummed, you know, ultimately she's getting measured and and, you know, the way that she gets measured on performance is by doing these deals, you know, and and, and hopefully that we're performing above the minimum guaranteed amount and we talked to her and explained everything and she was awesome. She's like, listen, this totally surprises me as well because we were shocked. We're like legitimately we're shocked. This isn't working. She's like, let me go see what I can do. And you know, some time passed, and she came back and said, "Hey, this is." She's like, "Here's an option. Let's cancel your Marvel agreement. We'll we'll let it run for the first year, basically, and we'll take your second year that you that you've signed because they had no reason. They, they didn't have to let us out of anything. We signed a exactly. two-year agreement, but she said, let's take that second year and let's tack that onto the end of your Disney one and extend that, and and that way Disney, the parent company." gets the same amount of money um, that way we don't feel this pressure or, or aren't losing money. And that way, you know, it does, it, it is good for Marvel in the sense that their brand doesn't get launched and not perform well. Sure. But ultimately it was, I, I mean, it was so I mean, she was so awesome to work with. She basically said, Hey, I get, I get it. Let me see what I can do to help out. It was probably to her detriment to do it. Um, but ultimately Disney, you know, we would able to take this, this kind of negative experience with Marvel and, and turn that into, you know, we're going to do way more revenue, you know, three to four times the revenue with Disney that we would have with Marvel. And so it ended up being this great win situation, but at the time it was freaking me out because <laughs> we had, we had a, this two year agreement and yeah. you know, and you have to pay money upfront even before you sell. And so it's like, Hey, we're not really wanting to pay out all this cash for something that we can't even sell in the first place. And so interesting, you know, interesting, every partnership works out. And I kind of learned that in previous, in previous past, we had a lot of good data that would suggest Marvel would have done really well for us. And even though it didn't, you know, it was great that we could find a way and kind of turn that into a win, but uh, it was stressful for a little while.
1: (laughs) I imagine geez. Um, I'm curious what, what was it like and what is it like to join a startup as a C-level? Um, and, and actually, even were you the first outside sea level hire?
0: Yeah, I was. So the the even, only, even harder. Yeah, yeah. So the only other sea level was Rachel Nelson, who was the founder and CEO. And you know it was fun. I mean, it was it was fun. It was hard. I, I feel fortunate that I was able to see a lot of good sea level executives uh, at Lucid and Qualtrics. I didn't get to interact with them a ton at, at all at at Amazon. But I knew- <laughs> Other uh, great leadership, but at Lucid and Qualtrics, I got to see by example some great things to do. And so I think that helped come in. And ultimately, I think when you're in my spot, you're joining a company that's kind of earlier on, they usually, you know, usually the founder does a pretty good job with the product and maybe what they're lacking on is process or, and or people, you know? And so, so Rags had some good people, some good product and had some good process. But I came in and basically said, okay, let's really figure out what um, how do we kind of systematize a lot of these things? How do we find ways to to scale and make things more efficient? And a lot of that is, uh, you know, I do, I do have the background in accounting and the, the data. And so I like to get in there and kind of analyze stuff. And so I spent a lot of time looking at our financials. I spent a lot of time looking at our sales history and what was working and what wasn't and ultimately used all this data to say, okay, let's establish this process and that process. And a couple of them were just, hey, you know, at the time, we would do all these product releases, but we would we try to be fairly reactionary to current trends. And we have this uh, really big following on social media. And so we try to listen to what the customer is saying and yeah. put that into the product. The problem was it put tremendous amounts of stress on the teams internally to make the product happen on these unimaginable timelines. Mm. And so things would get changed and someone would know, you know, our, so here's a perfect example. We were going to release a product on Tuesday, but because of some comments on social media, we thought it'd be better if we released a different product. Well, that, that information wasn't communicated to our photographer who took photography of the original product. And so then we tried to release it. We don't have photography of the product. So no one knows what it looks like. And so, you know, small things, but, a big part of it was hey how do we how do we get this company to communicate better so that decisions instead of being made kind of one off conversations let's mm-hmm. make decisions in meetings with all the stakeholders i hate i hate to just jam up everyone's schedules with meetings <laughs> you know i know everyone's got like meetings 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 we're sick of them yeah, but yeah. but what was happening was all these decisions were being made with on the fly verbally without you know, email confirmation or, or Slack, and not all the parties were getting in, in, involved or communicated, and so it would result in poor performance because half the job's getting done because the other half doesn't even know to do it. And so a lot of it was, okay, how do I help there be better communication? I set up this meeting that says, okay, we're reviewing what we're releasing every week, and we need the photographer there, we need our production person there, we need a designer there, we need you know, Rachel, the CEO there, And so anyone who touches a product release or marketing has to be there so that everyone is on board. Okay. We, we set, we made a decision in this meeting. This is what we're going to do. And everyone who's involved is there and knows about it.
1: Yeah. So rags is arguably a fairly successful company already. Right. But they're still very much in the early days uh, of being a company. So what is it like in the early days?
0: You know, it is, it is wild, you know, I mean, there, there is, there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lack of structure for sure. And so, um, you know, people don't know who to go to for, for answers or questions maybe, or, or things change often. So those can be maybe some of the challenging things, but it it's a blast. I mean, we, in the early days, you don't have an overabundance of rules and, 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 you know, process, you know, That could be good or bad, but you have fun. I mean, you, you go out and use some fun stuff as a team, you go out and you, you, you make this big accomplishment and it's really fun. So example is we were doing our first Disney launch and timeline wise, it was really hard for us to hit. We wanted it to hit in August from a a forecast standpoint, but there wasn't really a ton of room to do it. And so part of the team was saying, Hey, we can't do it. we got to push to September Mm. and you know we've said, Hey, let's, let's huddle up as a group and let's make this happen. And, you know, let's, let's do whatever it takes to make it happen. And you do it and it's fun and it's, you know, and then the whole team just celebrates these big wins. And so it's harder to do that when you get to be a bigger company, I think, but when you can feel like, Hey, the whole company like rallied together around a single event or initiative, that single event or initiative turned out really well. And then you can look around and say, that was awesome. You know, yeah. everybody good job. That was fun. And we all kind of enjoy the win. And as you get bigger, Those tend to not be as visible, but um, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy kind of the early stages.
1: What do you think Rags has done right early on?
0: Rags has done social media really well. And um, so Rags launched around when Instagram was getting started. And so they got a ton of... A ton of followers, a ton of uh, a, a ton of eyeballs on the product early on when it was free, and now Facebook makes you pay for everything. I mean, you got you want to get new eyeballs, you're paying for it. Yeah. And uh, but we, the, but Rags launched at this time when you could do that for free. Rags also launched this this uh, group called the Rags VIP on Facebook. And what this is, it's, it's a private group. You have to answer a few questions to get admitted. There's 17,000, or I think there's close to 18,000 members in this group. But what this has done is it's actually formed this community. And so what we hmm. found is over time, you know, using paid ads to get new customers is becoming less and less efficient because Facebook is wanting to take more and more of the dollars. And so you start to see like, hey, you know, new customer acquisition becomes... Trickier over time, but because we've built this free, basically social group, we can do a lot of things with this group in terms of bringing new customers into them, selling directly to them, et cetera. That's, um, that really goes a long way. And I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, sometimes we'll have just like one or two units of something left over. Rachel would go in this VIP group and say, Hey guys, I'm turning on all of our onesie twosies and we would do $20,000 in like 10 minutes just a post, just a post in our Facebook VIP group just crazy and so that's something that you know Rachel had this foresight of building this community on Facebook and i think that that has been t- to this day we have this direct line with with the customer they give us feedback in there they you know they buy stuff in there they go to each other wow. for help on on being moms etc and so that that group it has its negatives because when customers want to get negative in there, it can get it can get rowdy. but but um, you have this direct line of communication with the customer that has been really valuable for the company.
1: What piece of advice would you give to someone that's currently in the early years of a startup?
0: Um, <clears throat> no, that's a good question. I think uh, the biggest thing I would say definitely definitely work hard. I mean, it's it's easy to kind of get caught up in. You know, and I, I, fall, I have fallen victim to this. You know, you want to rise up in your career with title and role and stuff and, and don't get too far ahead of yourself, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, you want to set yourself up for that stuff though. So go out there and like own what you do and just knock it out of the park. Like the best way to, I think, really progress is to just go own something and do it really well. And then the other side would be, you know, I think relationships matter. And so I would spend time getting to know everyone in the company, uh, I would try to go to as so many events as you can with the company. Mm. Not everybody's an extrovert. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm, a, I'm not an extrovert probably, but I'm not an introvert. I kind of enjoy the social side, but I think as much as you can spend getting to know other people, um, building relationships with the people, that stuff comes in handy down the road in ways that you n- can never foresee. Yeah. Um, but it definitely, it definitely comes. And so. Grinding it out, um, doing what it takes, um, being responsible, being reliable, matter a ton. At the early stage, honestly, and here's the other thing. And the last thing I'll say actually on that is also being proactive. So if you're joining a a company earlier stage, they kind of, no one wants to hold your hand for stuff. They want to be able to say, hey, here's this new idea. Let's go start selling to these, to, you know, to this type of business. Can you just do it? And so you need to be able to say, okay, I'm going to go down, sit down, make a plan, communicate that plan and go do it. And so as um, the leaders of your, of the company likely don't have the time to develop the plan for you or kind of walk you through the whole process. But if you can be proactive to go build a plan, be very proactive in, in communicating, over communicate what you want to do, make sure you get everyone's buy-in and then go execute mm-hmm. and to the point where your manager – does not feel like they have to hold your hand, but they know exactly what's going on and they like the plan, then you will crush it.
1: That's Josh Robbins, the man that has taken his experience from the world's most successful companies to help build rags. Thanks for listening to today's show. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Also, if you like the show, leave us a rating. And as always, if you know someone that you think we should interview, email me at at theearlyyears.show. I'm Braden Anderson, and this is The Early Years.